Part three of Confessions of Two Brothers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Confessions of Two Brothers by John Cooper Powis and Llewellyn Powis. Confessions by John Cooper. Section three. I said I have no ideas of my own, and I have none. But the reader must not think me inconsistent if, all the way through the following pages, he comes continually upon references to fate. The impression of fate is not an idea, it is a fact. It is an inevitable human category. It is understood by instinct and propitiated by superstition. It is like the air we breathe and the ether which surrounds us. It is impossible to escape from it. It is the great truism the eternal axiom it is the thing originally given the primal stuff of all our experiences every philosophy every system every idea has its main difficulty the problem of dealing with fate a belief in fate is neither a philosophy nor a system it is a necessity but though this is true of the impression of fate i may perhaps go so far as to admit that the peculiar quality of my mind, its colourless receptivity, lends itself in an especial sense to an understanding of fate's implications, an unconquerable scepticism in the sphere of every explanation of this fact, tends to throw the fact itself into forlorn prominence. I may also admit that my predilection for what is chaotic and disconnected, for what is arbitrary, perverse and exceptional, springs in like manner from the irrational and incalculable nature of my detached sensations from what i have just said and the mere saying it chills me with the shadow of myself it has perhaps made a little more clear how difficult it is for me to paint a vivid portrait of such a subject i am not in myself an attractive subject though the impetus and magic with which i can interpret the attraction of others is so prevailing that many in coming to know me as i really am must suffer serious disappointment it is not only strangers and such gentle unknown sympathizers as may be led to read my writings who are thus disappointed it has been my ill luck to lead into devastating disillusions some of the most charming friends i have ever had they too have judged me by the swift protean transformations by which i have the power of assuming the very tone and temper of the writers i love they too have been interested and arrested by the significant intensity of my original sensations they too have looked anxiously for the imaginative vision that should give these sensations coherence but such a vision such a coherence has never appeared and they have been thrown wearily back upon the spectacle of an insane sensationalist pacing like an imprisoned tiger round and round the same cage and of an insane sceptic losing all identity and personality and substance in airy diffusions into empty space it is impossible for me to blame the faithful friends who thus provoked and tantalized beyond endurance turn and rend me with bitter speeches i sympathize with them and not with myself i love them and not myself 
and yet the crafty obduracy of the accursed thing i am grins patiently at their indignation smirks an ironic assent to all they say and shuffles off to behave as badly as ever in one very curious point i have absolutely deceived many simple people i have the power of suggesting the existence of abysmal gulfs of wickedness in a deep and terrible soul i am led sometimes almost to the verge of self-deception in this matter even now i confess i cannot quite explain how it is that certain of my emotions which i feel are really on the surface and purely a matter of that borderland between the brain and the nerves which we call the psychic region should seek to present themselves to me as if they uprose from unfathomable depths and were as they say inspired it must be due to a self-deception of this kind that the idea of the devil first took possession of man's imagination i have been ridiculously tempted now and again to assume the luciferian cloak and stride forth as a kind of poetic manfred ravaged by scoriac scars how much more exciting i could make this quiet sketch if i gave way to these promptings and indulged in hints and suggestions of dark evil profundities and myself of which i was the satanic victim but i am too sceptical for this and my mind is too clear ah how vain and foolish show all such fuliginous hallucinations in the presence of the marble continents of eternal fate i know well enough that my darkest most antisocial instincts are nothing but the pure material accidents of some prenatal jolts and agitations of some trifling pathological chance of birth and inheritance it is when the imagination invades the mind that is able to play such pranks and build up its elaborate metaphysical illusions out of what are pure material twists and warpings my imagination is as completely detached from my mind as my mind is detached from my senses that is one of the reasons why i find myself so unlovable and unattractive i am as it were a loosely tied knot of sense and mind and fancy and the resultant fabric is too unravelled to be agreeable to handle my imagination could play me if my sceptical reason were not so detached from it all manner of quaint tricks led by it i could enlarge upon certain of my inherent vices until all my life off the immediate track of these dangerous obsessions became like a drunkard sober interludes dull colourless and lethargic it could persuade me to take possession of some one particular vice a mere accident of birth and thrust it with awe and terror into dark mysterious caverns of primeval being until it became like the smoke of hell it could provoke me to turn some accidental perversity into a great spiritual tornado of evil making a desolation of all it touched it could easily do any of these things and it has come near to doing them when for some cause my wandering irresponsible mind has deserted its post but it never has really done them and never has really had its way with me because my obstinate incoherent senses and my airy fluid reason are very difficult things to dominate i sometimes feel as if i were a dead body 
galvanized temporarily into performing the necessary functions of existence but only inspired with real passionate life when some great spirit from the past some epicurus or spinoza or goethe touches me with his magic it is an odd thing this feeling of deadness of heavy material inertia it is combined in my case with the teasing pricks of a thousand annoying thoughts thoughts of practical difficulties of hypochondriacal apprehensions of social antipathies and it weighs upon me for hours together more heavily than my harassed stomach it is not only the great souls from the past who can cry aloud to this corpse that is i rise up and walk i can be drawn back to life by the vivifying presence of any brave and joyous companion given the society of one person that i know my second self my brother in the lord and i could pass an eternity of earthly days without ever falling back into myself he would feel for me he would laugh for me he would cry for me and with him i should become a natural living person full of buoyancy and friendly grace with him by my side life would become to me like the perpetual reading of an exquisite book some unending marius the epicurean or jean christophe the pages of which i should turn every day with new delight and wonder perhaps my peculiar disposition is one that was really intended by nature to be so accompanied perhaps shorn of this solace i really move through this world atrophied and stunted inchoate and paralyzed perhaps it is the want of this alter ego of this twin soul that makes me so wearily away from normal humanity and grow so dull and morose perhaps it is the want of him that lends to my little absurd vices their obsessing quality their preoccupying importance i know well enough that when i am with him my vices are as nothing it is difficult for me to write this brief dissection of the body of my thought it would be far more difficult for me to attempt anything of an autobiographical nature i cannot bear to recall my childhood and those memories of youth which bring tears of sentimental self-love to the eyes of the most hardened fill me with nothing but a cold repulsion my past self at any remote epoch seems so unpleasantly like my present self that i loathe to think of it in fact in many respects i prefer my present self to these clumsy caricatures these shuffled premonitions by long practice i have learned the art of escaping from myself after blunderings and absurd experiments i have discovered what particular authors and artists and people and places are best adapted to save me from myself my whole life has been one long running away and years have given me swiftness and agility i am now such an adept at self-forgetfulness that i might almost claim to be able to jump over my own shadow i should not be giving an absolutely faithful sketch of what i am if i did not allude to a certain quaint and strange phenomena which sometimes confuses me by its appearance i allude to the phenomena of possession if any man has been the victim of this ancient experience it is surely i i am sometimes it would seem literally possessed now it must be understood that i do not for a moment believe in any supernatural object corresponding to these experiences 
I believed them to be entirely explicable on purely material grounds. But I should be false to myself if I did not confess that, when they appear, they appear accompanied by the illusion of spiritual reality. I have suffered at different times from the presumption of three distinct possessions. Under the influence of one, I become insatiably wicked and have the illusion of wickedness as a thing of infinite horizons and possibilities. My sceptical reason mocks at this formidable nonsense and hints satirically that the whole thing is due to some trifling chance of prenatal warping. Under the influence of another, I become preternaturally noble and have the illusion of goodness as a thing of infinite horizons and possibilities. My sceptical reason mocks at this too and points to the atavistic presence of some blind race instinct which would fain submerge the selfishness of the individual in the loftier selfishness of the tribe. Lastly and most curious of all, I have splendid and transcendental possession under the influence of which I feel conscious of an invincible courage and an unconquerable contempt, a courage ready to look all accidents, all chance, all circumstances in the face, with calm indifference, a contempt that rises magnificently above both good and evil, and feels itself the initiated accomplice of the abysmal mysteries of life and death. I am quite aware that these experiences are not peculiar to me. I have a shrewd suspicion that all the children of men come under this influence at one time or another. I think, however, that the abnormal receptivity of my temperament makes me especially liable to them, and it is for this reason that I offer myself to psychological analysis as a particularly emphatic type. This sketch might be made much more interesting and effective if I set out to project a deliberately imaginative dramatic figure, such as I could wish to be, such as I could myself contemplate with love or pity or admiration. But such imaginative projections, to be convincing and touching, require a lifelong training of the self-conscious mind. Such projections are, as a matter of fact, what artists and artistic-minded people naturally do evoke, they mix their imagination with their senses, and their senses with their reason, and upon the resultant amalgam, they throw the inspiring torch flame of some great symbolic purpose. They do not stop to ask whether they are on the right path, the path justified by objective truth or by material reality. They just steer boldly forward, and in unscrupulous pragmatic excitement create, or half-create, their own truth. As I shall endeavour to show later, my own attitude to these people is one of ingrained contempt. I despise their imaginative projections, their artistic pragmatic pseudo-truths. I am all for the bare, bold, merciless determinism of drastic conformity with fact. It's very quaint the way I feel in this matter, for, of course, among the great artists who are now dead and buried, and whom I love so well, there must have been many who played fast and loose with their pleasant dreams, just as these moderns do. And yet, I am not sure. There seems a certain affectation of artistic attitudes common to our generation, from which the older masters were free. 
or is it only that being so near to them their little ways are more annoying i do not know i only know that it is absolutely impossible for me to make an attractive work of art out of the contemplation of my own moods this sketch resolves itself then into what i should be inclined to claim as one of the most cold-blooded dissections on record of a living person by his own hand it is incomplete because the opinion of our day is unprepared to welcome absolute candour but as far as it goes it is drastically sincere it is meagre and dry and sapless but it is this because apart from the special outward objects that inspire me my mind is meagre and sapless and dry to the question what use then is publishing such a depressing document i should answer at once that the value of the thing is strictly psychological and as such of immense and suggestive interest given an eloquently impassioned critic and not even my enemies would deny my right to that title it is i maintain of curious and delicate interest to know what the texture of such a critic's mind is like i am always engaged in analyzing the minds of clever artists let me for once undertake the less pleasing task of analyzing the mind of a clever critic incidentally such an analysis is bound to throw a certain interesting light upon the relations between criticism and creation after all it is perhaps just as well that the temper of the public should have made it impossible for me to do more than allude to any of my peculiarities which may be antisocial or antinomian it is so easy if once one begins dealing with one's more sensual attributes to be led into the most fantastic exaggerations one requires a touch as light as gossamer seed and as penetrating as a gnat's sting to follow into their elaborate intricacies the sensual proclivities of even the most guileless among us and after all what most of us would be tempted to undertake if we entered upon such an enterprise would be an indication with wanton flights of fancy not of what we have ever done or are likely to do under the existing pressure of circumstances and situation but of what we could conceive ourselves doing if this or that obstacle were removed an obstacle which we know very well never in the nature of things can be removed an obstacle which would probably turn out to be our own tenderness of heart or timidity of spirit or temerity of conscience i have not indulged in descriptions of how i feel in english country gardens as compared with my sensations in the corridors of american hotels or how i feel in the presence of crowded audiences as compared with my emotions in the solitude of a railway carriage for these things are not really germane to the matter what i have attempted to do is sum up as clearly as possible the most salient and persistent of my instinctive reactions to the general drama of the world and my most inveterate and obstinate attitudes to men to nature and to the unknown and there seems to emerge from it all for me at least the image of a nervous timid morbid but at the same time reckless figure a figure full of quaint anxiety to be loved and admired but utterly unable to love or admire itself a figure troubled and perverted by strange obsessions a figure blinded by obstinate pride 
yet crippled by ridiculous humility, a figure grotesque and comic, but not devoid of elements of forlorn distinction, a figure fleeing across an interminable desert to escape from the shadow of itself, a figure half dead and atrophied, yet responsive as a reed to celestial harmonies, a figure driven forward by fate, yet pathetically seeking to love the fate that drives it, a figure fettered and bound by sensual infirmity, yet mocking with subtle derision every ideal that would liberate it, a figure struggling beneath the burden of its wretched contradictions, yet looking for no issue from its dilemma save in the narcotic power of critical analysis and the obliterating power of death, for out of the ghastliness of the historic cataclysms which surround us now, there must sooner or later be a return to the cultivation of our own particular gardens, and my garden of oblivion, until I die, can be nothing else, of that at least I am sure, than the memory of great men and the interpretation of their labours. End of part three.